1: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Tyler Cowen, uh, not Cohen, which is a mistake I made and I am ashamed of and now uh, apologizing for publicly. Tyler Cowen, he is an economist at George Mason University, the author of the Marginal Revolution blog, which is just an excellent blog, and the author of the new book, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream, which is a very, very fascinating argument that Americans are... As much as it may seem that everything is changing fast, as much as it may seem that people are suddenly open to all kinds of crazy ideas, it is an argument that we've actually become complacent, that we have become narrow, that a lot of what looks like stress in the society is actually us becoming extremely attached to the status quo. Like all of Tyler's books and thoughts, I am not sure I agree with all of it, but it is more thought-provoking perhaps than anything else I've read in a long time, so I highly recommend it. This is a fascinating, I'm not even sure I'm going to call it a discussion. Tyler has more interesting ideas on things than basically anyone I've ever met. So my hope in this was to just have him explain his ideas on many, 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 many different things. His rules for living, both personally in terms of how to find a romantic partner, how to have a successful experience in college, where to find good food, how to travel. And then also conceptually, what does he think of a universal basic income? What does he think of the idea that we all live in a computer simulation? What does he think of American exceptionalism? I would say pretty much every single one of his answers was completely fascinating. So I enjoyed this immensely. I hope you do too. As always, a couple quick requests. Please, please share this podcast, send it to your friends, put it out on Twitter. On Twitter, you can use the hashtag, TheEKShow, and I will check it out and make sure I am paying attention to those conversations. If you enjoy this podcast, I am certain you will enjoy the other one I do, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and I go deep into policy and policymaking, and there is a hell of a lot of it to talk about right now. And then finally, please continue to email me, your suggestions for guests, your feedback at Show at Vox.com. So without further ado, here's Tyler Cowan. Tyler Cowen, thank you for being on the podcast. Cowan, thank-
2: though. Cowan? Yeah. Oh, my God. Tyler. Have I been saying your name wrong this whole time? We've been friends for years. I don't know that you've been saying it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Tyler Cowan. Um, see, I am already learning things. We are only minutes and seconds in. You had smoked trout for breakfast?
2: I had smoked trout for breakfast. You have it every morning? Every morning when I'm at home. It stores remarkably well, so you can buy it in large quantities, and fish is good for you.
1: And do you have it with anything, or you just open up a can and, and go to town on smoked trout?
2: It's not in a can. It's in a Whole Foods wrapper. I try to have blueberries, some cheese, a green pepper, and smoked trout, and maybe some grapes.
1: This is quite a plate. Is it a superfood plate? Is that the idea? Are these assembled for for health reasons, or is this a, like, smoked trout and green pepper and grapes just happen to be a combination you love?
2: It's a combination I love. You can get them all at Whole Foods. The grapes are the things that go bad quickly, but otherwise it works. (laughs) I like that. All
1: right. I'm going to try that. So I was thinking about how to do this discussion with you. We've talked a lot over the years yeah. and talking to you. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. And, and in part because you create rules for virtually, I think, everything you look at. And so I, I sort of wanted to go through rules you have for different things, sure. principles you have for different things. And I, I thought we'd, we'd begin on the meta level. Okay, What are your rules for creating rules? How do you know when you have created a principle for how to find good food in South Korea or how to write a book
2: versus you simply reframed an anecdote as a rule? If I find a rule is leading me to learn something and encounter interesting clusters of people and revise my earlier views, typically I'll start judging that as a good rule. Now, those may be fallible metrics because then there's a meta question. Well, how do you know your rule for judging rules is a good rule? And if you apply the same rule to that, it's circular, right? Right. So at some point, you're going with your gut intuitions, but those are my key gut intuitions. And,
1: and how do you test rules? I remember when, I believe it was when you came back from South Korea, if I'm not wrong, and you put up a piece on Marginal Revolution, your blog, and you said the way to get good food, I may get the country wrong here, but it was to go out into the, not the city, but you wanted to go in the suburbs, and in the suburbs, you wanted to find the mall. And I remember thinking, you were there for a week. How did you have time to validate a rule about how to find good food, as opposed to say, I found this one good place in the suburbs?
2: As you're going around looking for food, you see many other places. And if you know food fairly well, I think usually you can tell how good a place is just by looking at it, and most importantly, looking at the people who are eating there. So you're sampling a lot more than simply the places you're eating at. But note in South Korea, most of the food is really quite good, so you can pursue almost any strategy in that country and do very well. Mark Miller, when I chatted with him recently, he thinks right now it's the single best place Mm -hmm. in the world to eat. My wife went to Seoul earlier in 2016 and came back and basically said she'd never had food that good. And the number of places where there's a grandma cooking something that no one quite has heard of and it's not cataloged and it's not just sitting there in Yelp. It seems to me Seoul is right now maybe the best city in the world for that kind of place.
1: Well, let me speak to you about another place that people tend to believe is one of the best in the world. You grew up in New Jersey. Northern New Jersey, correct. What are your rules for growing up in New Jersey?
2: Leave is rule number one. (laughs) So New Jersey is an important exporter of people, but keep in mind, that also means there's demand for those people. So you grow up in population density, so you learn a lot from other people. A nice thing about coming from New Jersey is so many other places seem interesting to you. I worry sometimes had I grown up in Los Angeles or New York, I'd be a bit jaded. Like, oh, you know, nowhere is as good as where I come from. But New Jersey people don't feel that way. So it, to me, it's a big advantage to come from New Jersey. Why do you think there's particular demand for New Jerseyites? They are hungry to achieve an ambitious They don't think they know everything, but at the same time, they've been exposed to New York and or Philadelphia and grown up with other smart people. Are they
1: hungry to achieve and ambitious in part because there is a inferiority complex against New York that you've got to prove yourself?
2: Yes, it's hard to grow up there and simply be smug or complacent. And when I was growing up, it was dangerous enough and had enough turmoil. You thought, well, things could be better. You really tried to imagine a better future.
1: So one thing that I was going back and reading a bunch of the profiles of you to prepare for this, and one thing that I, I I think actually you may have mentioned this, but you were a reasonably good athlete when you were younger.
2: What did you play? I don't know if I'd say I was a good athlete. I was an acceptable athlete for someone who's a nerd. So I played seven years of little league baseball. I played basketball. I played tennis. I wasn't good in the sense of having achieved anything, Mm -hmm. but I never embarrassed myself. And I think that's unusual for a lot of people who ended up growing up into nerddom. What are your rules for baseball? Don't play. It takes too long. One of the most surprising things I find about myself is that I once found the game of baseball very interesting. And now to me, that's totally baffling. Maybe it's just a change in the opportunity cost of my time, but it's far too slow. And the way in which it's cerebral seems too dry to me. So my main rule of baseball is forget about it. Too slow to play or too slow to watch? Either. It just takes too long. Now, wages were lower when I did this, right? So that may be why. W- wages
1: for seven-year-olds?
2: That's right. They were zero, <laughs> maybe negative. <laughs>
1: and you, you said you played basketball. Did you play any of these in high school? In a sort of Not organized... on
2: teams. I still play basketball. Uh-huh. Maybe when the weather's okay, four or five times a week, I'll go out. Oh, really? And just shoot as a way of limbering up and keeping oh, exercise. So I'm a pretty good pure shooter. What are your rules for shooting? Arc means everything, and when you're shooting a free throw or a regular show, put more arc on it than you think you need. And even if you've been shooting for 40 years, you need to put more arc on it than you think you need. Oh, that's interesting. So there's a there's a gut intuition that you always go a little bit too low on that. That's right. And you tend to be flat. That's our natural rhythm of shooting, and you never quite get over that. So I, I've often wondered what you were like as a kid, and I've particularly wondered about high school. Mainly so, the same. <laughs> how did that work for you? It worked really well. And, you know, I think when I'm 80 years old, I'll more or less be the same too. What are your rules for high school?
1: Have and a, for, particularly for being a nerd in high school, let me put it that way. Because if you're the same, if you're an infovore in the way you are now, how do you do that and be successful
2: and be happy in high school? So I'm 55 years old. When I was in high school, nerddom had much lower status than it does today, even in northern New Jersey. But I think if you have three or four really good friends in high school – You can be happy pretty much no matter what. And my high school years were great. I had wonderful intellectual conversations every day. My high school wasn't that good. It was okay. It gave me plenty of time to read. I was happy with that. My mother volunteered to send me to a higher quality private school. I said, no way, they're going to take over my life.
1: That's so interesting. So you wanted to create maximum space to not be doing high school.
2: And that for me was the case for public school. I'm very glad I stayed in public school.
1: You began reading, I read... Economics and Philosophy at 13? That's correct. What were the first books you read?
2: Henry Hazlitt, Economics in One Lesson, a book called The Incredible Bread Machine. And then I just went to the Rivervale Public Library and took back a lot of classics, things like Adam Smith, Marshall, and I read parts of them. Adam Smith is a hard read,
1: I would imagine, for a 13 or 14-year-old.
2: I don't think it is. It may be a boring read for most 13-year-olds, but it's very literal and it's not hard So you can learn from it rather readily, conditional on being interested. You have a reading
1: speed that is almost comical. I have seen this, but before I'd seen it, people just mentioned to me
2: that they'd seen you read on a plane, and it's like you just look at pages and flip them over. Did you have that when you were a kid? It's comical, but I would say it's comically slow. So the reason I can quote-unquote read fast today is because I read so much when I was young, and I know a lot already of what I'm reading. So if people ask me, well, how long did it take you to read that book? Usually the correct answer is, well, about 40 years. So if I read just a standalone work of fiction today, I don't read much faster than most people, maybe a bit faster, but that's the way to think about it.
1: I actually want to stop there for a minute because I don't think that is, that might be true, but it is not applicable to most people. So I've read a lot of these books as well. And I do not have the ability to stare at a page and know how to skim it. So when you say that you are bringing to bear all the knowledge you have in order to not read everything quite so thoroughly, how are you doing that? How are
2: you creating that sort of on-the-fly arbitrage of the words? Oh, well, that's just genetic, I think. So for a long time, my mother told me, you know, when I was two or three years old, I just taught myself to read. And I thought, you know, that mom say things like that. But it turns out it's actually a thing. It's called being hyperlexic. And I assume I'm hyperlexic. So I have a some kind of ability to just read better by uh, visual acuity. Do you skim or are you just able to sort of see the page as a whole block? I can do either. I'm not sure those are the right categories, but I can see the what page are the right as a categories? whole block. I don't think we know what the right categories are. I've tried to read a lot of pieces on hyperlexics. They don't seem to me very insightful. I think it's a poorly understood phenomenon and reading speed in general. The very fact that it seems we cannot easily teach it suggests we don't understand it very well. How would you describe for you the experience of reading and having watched people around you try
1: to do the same? How does it seem to be different?
2: Well, here's another skill I have that I found. I can see a wall of books and look at the titles rather quickly or go to a table at a used book sale and find very quickly the books I want to buy. It's a bit like reading the titles quickly, Mm -hmm. but it's not about reading quickly. It's a kind of visual acuity, which is not the same as having good eyesight. So I suspect that's largely genetic in most people. And then you need to take that and learn how to apply it to the page to get out of the page what you want to get. Sometimes it's skimming, yes, but a lot of times it's not.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens.
2: Do you read it all digitally? Do you use a Kindle or an iPad? I do. I don't like them. I'm able to do it, but I find I do better with you know physical books. And Kindle is only because I can't carry all the books that I can read on a six-hour plane trip. Do you find that the visual experience is similar for you on them? It's very different, and the page-turning experience is very different. There's something about uh, the sound when you turn the page and the feeling and how you... Turn the pages in a book to find where you want to go. It's completely different with the physical book. The other piece of this seems to be focus. A big
1: problem I have for reading is just holding focus for a long time, or even for that matter, for a short time. Do you feel that you are able to zone into particular tasks
2: very well? And related to that, are there ones you can't zone into as well as others can? Uh, I think I can zone in quite well when I want to, but the inability to maintain focus is part of how we get through things. So I would say probably what you do is you've learned to take your quote-unquote inability to hold focus and use it as a propelling mechanism in a way that makes you much more productive as an editor, a writer, and also a reader. Obviously, you've done, you know, okay in this world. And I think what you're calling your inability is actually your ability when you look at it from the other side of the mirror. And I'm the same way. That's interesting. So I want you to expand on that. When you say you're the same way, what do you mean? Well, I can turn it on and off. You may be different in this regard. But if I want to switch into a kind of ADHD mode where the lack of attention is itself what propels me through something in what can be an efficient way, I feel I can do that and I have pretty good judgment as to when I should turn that on. But if I'm reading David Hume or Derek Parfitt, you've really just got to sit and concentrate on certain things. Uh, that's so see, here's maybe the difference between us here. I can't do that latter one.
1: What I appear to have, and, and it's funny, I've I've just been sort of working through this recently and trying to understand a little bit better. But there are certain kinds of information and tasks that I can very, very, very deeply focus on, like almost to a strange level. Writing is one of them. I can get into a flow state in writing very quickly. I cannot listen to somebody lecture.
2: Cannot. I cannot very well either. It's almost like an auditory processing disorder. There's kind of impatience that sets in. It's like quicker, 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 and 2x -hmm. still isn't enough. Yeah, that's interesting. and. and so books, I can sort of, it splits a difference.
1: If I get into it, I can. And if I can't, I don't have the ability to flip a switch. It's actually, it really bounces me of
2: something I wanted to ask you about. What is your view on nootropics? Should we all just be on Adderall all the time? I've never tried Adderall or really any other drugs, but I worry a great deal about them because what we so often think of is our disabilities are so often so closely tied to our cognitive advantages. And the notion that we're going to smooth everyone out with drugs and supposedly enable them to focus better, I fear we're inhibiting their compensatory mechanisms that actually are at the root of a lot of their skills. Give give me an example. I think
1: I know what you mean, but draw out for me what you mean by that. Give me an example of something people might think of as a weakness that, in fact, is part of their compensatory and valuable skill set.
2: Well, what people sometimes call inability to pay attention, not in everyone. For many people, this is a real problem. I don't mean to minimize that. And maybe some people, you know, should be taking medication. But a lot of people use that to propel themselves through material and to maintain interest and to discover variety, and it's a big cognitive advantage. So the idea that we're going to apply some blanket notion of giving everyone drugs when I suspect the filtering mechanism, the authorities, the prescribers, whatever, doesn't really understand who ought to be getting the drugs and who not, Mm -hmm. I would be very cautious with this kind of experiment. Because I feel we're going to inhibit a lot of people's cognitive strengths. One of the things I worry about is that we are training
1: ourselves to be much less focused. I feel even compared to a couple of years ago before I had Twitter, before I had Facebook, before I had quite this ability to distract myself every second of the day, including when I am, say, have pushed the button eight on an elevator and I'm just in the elevator for 22 seconds, I will automatically pull out my phone and begin looking at something And I wonder if one reason people are not going to begin to move towards those kinds of drugs is that we are artificially training ourselves to a very high level of distractibility, training our brains to expect a very high level of novelty that maybe has some positive effects, but definitely does come at some cost or has for me come at some cost in just being able to focus in on something and zone in on something.
2: I don't think we know that's bad. Two points I would make. First, I'm very glad we still have parts of the world where that's not the case. So maybe some parts of the world will write the long novels. And, you know, we'll do shorter pieces in some regard. America is for blogging. Somewhere else is for... (laughs) That's correct. Although (laughs) smartphones are spreading, as you know. Right, yes. We also are in a a situation where there are many people. I'm one of them. They've lived in both worlds. So, yes, I've become more distractible and I pull out my smartphone in the elevator. But I spent the first really 40 years of my life not doing that. And the other habits of close, careful study, I had a long time Mm -hmm. to develop and let them sink in. So I think it will change fundamentally when people of, say, my generation are completely gone, as someday they will be. But in the meantime, there's this unique group who've lived in both worlds, Mm -hmm. and that's actually very powerful for them. That's interesting. And I
1: think that's probably right. I mean, my kids, my hypothetical future children, they will never grow up in a world without these things. Correct. And that, I think, probably will mess with people's brains in a way that we don't quite know. And it may be a good thing, right? It may be that the adaptive skill now is an incredibly high level of reasonably shallow information processing and search for
2: new information. But I'm not, I'm not positive about that. I'm, I don't think I'm sanguine about that. But also think of it as an optimal resource exploitation problem. So say your kids or grandkids, maybe they'll be into virtual reality or some other mm-hmm. technology we can't imagine yet. That will encourage some other mode of thought. So maybe we have this like 20-year window where checking your smartphone in the elevator is what we all do, and we need to specialize in thinking that way and get out of it what we can, because that will in turn be going away. So let's hurry up and, you know, do it to the nth degree, (laughs) because that's an endangered species. That's a fair point. What are the books you read in high school that influenced you the most? Influenced me the most. Economics in general. I would say economics more than any single book. Uh, Why? (laughs) right. It's a way of thinking that is very seductive, also more limited and limiting than you realize at first. But when you come upon it as a young person, it's like, wow, here's economics. Here's an organizing framework, if not quite for everything, for many, many things. Reading philosophy, Plato was maybe the single biggest influence on me. Really, Just the notion, not, not the content so much, but the notion of a dialogue and here are different points of view and the way you understand something is by looking at it at a lot of different angles. That made a a huge impression on me when I was 13, 14. You used to sometimes do that on your blog. You would have dialogues with Tyrone, and was that a bit Plato-influenced? Fully Plato-influenced, and my series, Conversations with Tyler, I have one with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're doing one now. And there's something dialogic about wisdom that is still underrated, but I think is making a comeback.
1: You'd begun to mention, I think, Ayn Rand. Yes, Ayn Rand. Tell me about her because she is somebody who has, is both very popular and has developed a, there are a lot of people who have developed a deep antipathy towards her work,
2: potentially not having read it. The book that really influenced me was Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which is sort of her treatment of economics. And what was the key point for me there was a a kind of sociological insight that societies need to have a belief in the merit of their producers. Now, the later Tyler has developed a Straussian version of that, that that belief isn't always merited by any means, but still you need to take the people who are contributing and develop a kind of mythology around them. Ayn Rand on philosophy, I really always thought was wrong. I had read enough other philosophy that when I read her on philosophical topics, very little of it to me seemed to be correct. Encapsulate
1: her philosophy for a minute.
2: She had some take, you know, standing on one foot first, existence exists, and man is the rational being. I'm not sure either of those are true, actually, man. Uh, I have a Humean view of people that they're more ruled by their passions and emotions than by reason, and that that's inevitable. And the notion that objective reality is the way of thinking about the world, uh, I worry that's an undefined term. It's not that I'm a subjectivist in the sense that the world is a projection of our minds, but I simply think that we get further understanding the world in small bits than by stamping our feet and saying things like existence exists. So let me
1: go back to what you were just saying about her belief that you should raise up the value of the producers. A, a model you often apply to different questions and probably topics in the news is that what is really happening is people are having a fight over whether some group or another should be raised up in status. And there are times when the argument is Should rich people be raised up in status? Maybe that's really what the tax argument is about, not really about taxes and budgetary policy, but status questions. There's an argument about whether or not folks who are working class should be raised up in status. Tell me why you are taken with the idea that producers should have a, a yet higher status than they do.
2: I don't think it's only producers. I think if you have a country which is doing fairly well, as America has been, it's more or less the global hegemon. It's the fount of global innovation that stability is of fairly high value. And it's one of my worries about the current times that we're eating into that stability. So it's not only producers you want to raise in value, but producers, obviously, they're, they're the ones who produce things and they innovate for the whole world. But I think established structures, a certain kind of patriotism and nationalism also fall into this category, what you would call traditional or common sense morality, These all need to have high status, and I worry that we've been eating into that capital, even though some of the arguments against them may well be correct, because obviously there's a lot of hypocrisy in the world, and people don't always behave very well. Elites have screwed up pretty badly in this country and around the world, but when your program is tear down elites, it's very rare that that can come to a good end, at least in a fairly well-functioning society. What groups do you think should have higher status than they do? Actually, all groups, and that's a counterintuitive point, but zero it's sum? not zero-sum, huh. especially with the internet. Status is positive sum. You match people, you know, fans to stars, admirers to celebrities, admirers to ideals, much better than ever before. So we have this great new technology, the internet. In some ways, it gives us a lot more status, so nerds have more status, but we're also using it to tear down status, and we actually run the risk of destroying the whole world through that. So lay that out. What do you mean we run the risk of destroying the world through that? Social media, which you're very familiar with, it's easier to spread false news, scandals, tearing down people. People read others and they discover they don't like them very much. And that's highly dangerous. The people you follow on Twitter, you don't agree with. I see more and more people deciding, I just don't like person X. And it's not that I want to blame Twitter or Facebook, but they have those effects so if it ends up through social media that everyone loses status, they will actually probably be a net negative for society. So
1: my hypothesis on this is that what social media is is a technology for people to form new and particularly beginning weekly tied together groups. Sure. And the way that you solidify groups is by deciding who you don't like. That's it's right. More powerful than deciding who you do like. Right. And so the continuous two minute hates that filter through Twitter and filter through Facebook and filter through other parts of the internet are driven, it seems to be in part, by folks policing the boundaries of their group and also just trying to solidify bonds that are fundamentally
2: pretty tenuous. So I worry today the so-called establishment or what the establishment was not long ago has lost too much status. And if you're evaluating this huge ongoing experiment of the internet and social media, I would say first and foremost, look at how it's changing status relations. Give me a couple examples of how it's changing status relations. As you know, experts seem to have lost a lot of status in the United States. What they say doesn't matter anymore. You can debate how much it ever did, and you can say, well, McNamara and the, you know, the boys during the Vietnam War, that was terrible. All that's correct. But at the end of the day, a well-functioning society needs some amount of deference to experts, not unthinking deference, not mindless obedience. But when there's a kind of bipartisan consensus of well-educated people that it carries real weight, And it's at least possible we're we're losing that and everything's becoming a mudslinging war and a bunch of surprises and we're living in this new bizarro universe. And that's a problem fundamentally of status.
1: As you say, status may not be zero sum. And so two things are going on simultaneously. A lot of people are getting matched to folks like they have higher status with. And then there's a lot of tearing down. And one of the things that has been interesting to me, it has been my personal experience of it, but also I've seen it in a lot of other people is that individuals absorb the tearing down much more deeply than they absorb the building up. So people who maybe all of a sudden have 15 new fans, and for every 15 new fans, they have two new haters, they will absorb the two new haters very deeply. It, It will shake them in a way that the 15 fans will not boost them. And so I think that a lot of people who you would think in a sort of the raw arithmetic of people liking and hating you on the internet would be very happy with what has happened or actually less happy, more
2: defensive, more angry, and overall there's a net destruction of welfare. Or say you do a job evaluation for someone at Vox and you say 10 nice things about them and one critical thing. They'll be thinking about the critical thing for the weeks to come and not so much the nice things. So we need to understand this dynamic better and somehow adapt ourselves to it. So this is a self-adaptive system. I think it's wrong to look at round one and just extrapolate that and say we're all headed to hell. But that said, we don't know how it will end, and it's a new risk, and it's a very serious one. What round do you think of this as in the Internet? Maybe it's round three, but there are 50, 100 rounds, so it's quite early in the experiment. I like to say the Internet has been overrated so far, but underrated in terms of what is to come. Explain. A lot of what it's done is just improve our use of leisure time, and that's great, but we've had the internet and actually rates of productivity growth stagnant or falling, and that's still not discussed enough. It hasn't made the world that much more productive. Some of it's that people waste time with it, but some of it, it simply doesn't make a lot of physical processes that much more effective. It's starting to, but healthcare and education, their rates of productivity growth are pretty miserable. And, uh, I think over time, this will change. It will revolutionize everything. Everything will become a tech sector just in the way that animated movies once drawn by hand are now Pixar, CGI, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're not sure what rate this will occur at, but it will change literally everything in our whole world.
1: When did you get on the internet?
2: 93, 94, give so or take. early. I don't consider that early, but if you call it early, I'm flattered. I'm calling it early. Okay. What did you think would be true about
1: it in those early years that you have been disappointed by?
2: I didn't realize how important it was. And I wrote a book on the arts, published in 97, but I guess finished off in 96. And although it mentions the internet, there's no sustained discussion of the internet in that book. That's a sign of how in the dark I was. So you just underrated it altogether. I thought it was great for email, Mm -hmm. which would be nice of a cheaper way of making phone calls and it would be much better for people. And I had no notion of how many different things it would change. So where did you go after high school? Where did you go to college? I went to college at George Mason. How did you choose George Mason? It's a complicated story. For one thing, I was very interested in what is called Austrian economics, which is connected to what you might call free market economics, a better known term. It was also the case my father didn't want to pay for me to go to school. He is a very old-fashioned sort, and he hadn't gone to college himself, and he thought the whole thing was a waste of time. So they offered me a fellowship. I wanted to leave New Jersey— I was interested in free market in Austrian economics and all the pieces fell into place did, and there did, I was. That makes me wonder, did, did you grow up in a house of people who had your
1: sort of hyper intellectual characteristics or were you a bit of an odd duck in your house?
2: I was an odd duck, but not completely so. So my grandmother who lived with us for a long time, she wasn't that well educated, but she read a lot and read very smartly. My mother had very broad interests and was very open my father hadn't gone to college, was in some ways maybe anti-intellectual, but was very, very smart. So I felt I had a good mix of influences, but none of them were really that much like me. Did you see that clearly early on? Oh, absolutely, yes. And I was even in the family somewhat of an outsider, but I always had good relations with everyone too. This is a happy, is a happy home. You were just a, a peculiar beast within it. Happy, is such a tricky word. I mean, it was a peaceful home. And I felt I thrived in it. Mm -hmm. And so you wanted to go to college and that wasn't actually a value that your family
1: held very high.
2: My father, my mother valued it more. I had another offer from Boston University, but you know what really bugged me? I couldn't stand the thought of living in a dorm. And I know everyone aspires to do that. But to me, that was just living hell. What about it? And I'm glad I never lived in a dorm. It's noise. You can't go to sleep when you want. People are smoking, drinking, all kinds of... Nonsense. And the notion that I could go to school somewhere and not have to live in a dorm, that to me was a huge selling point. Is that a George Mason University characteristic? It was at the time. Now, the school has more and more dorms, but it was originally purely a commuter school and it was the norm. So I was here a young teenager and able to just live in an apartment and have a real life, that to me was so blissful, so exciting, so positive, and I think so good for me. And it was a big plus. Hearing the reasons you didn't want to live in a dorm, are you very routine focused in your own life? Very routine focused. I suspect a dorm would have disrupted that. I've also never smoked, had interest in drinking, drugs, any of that. Have you ever tried them or no? Never tried, no. Dorms, it seems to me, are cesspools of that, though I've never lived in one. And I wanted to focus on work and learning things. And uh, I had a great time at George Mason. I'm very glad I went. Although I had guidance counselors telling me I was crazy not to try to go to Princeton.
1: So I have virtually never met anybody who's hungrier for new experiences than you are. And given that, I'm actually surprised you've never had curiosity about perhaps not smoking, but drinking hallucinogens,
2: things that are coded more as experiential drugs and pursuits. Well, you're probably overrating my curiosity. So it's it's focused along some dimensions. It's a very specialized curiosity. Someone once said to me, well, if you're so curious, you know, why don't you try being gay for a week? This is before I was married. And I had no no desire to do that. Still haven't done it. Don't think I ever will do it. But you would learn something. You could do it in a way that was no risk in any explicit sense. So uh, I think it's wrong to think of me of curious. I've never ridden on a motorcycle or, you know, done many other things.
1: Got it. Okay. So you're, you're extremely curious in food and travel, but it's not. And a, books and, and learning. Books, yeah.
2: But to be so curious in those ways, you need to limit yourself in other ways. Maybe it's an unfortunate trade-off.
1: That's interesting. To I think feel it. It, it. You trade-off? know, I've been very
2: happy with that, but everyone makes that kind of trade-off. And the people who think like, oh, I'm the searching one. I'm the curious one. I'm the open-minded one. I mean, that's such a hypocrisy. It's really important. I think that we all avoid that because it's, pretty much never true.
1: There's a line that goes around sometimes. I actually heard it here from Tanasi Coates that to be wild in your work, you need to be very constrained in your home life, that in order to just have the energy and the space and the confidence to do very intense things professionally, that he thought it was important that you had a very, very almost boring personal existence,
2: so there was space for that. Do you buy that? Uh, It's true for me. I'm not sure it's true for everyone. But I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Imagine you met a person who just tried different things. They tended bar for a year in Thailand. You know, for a year they were homosexual. For a year they did LSD. For a year they were in Antarctica. And so on and so on. As many dimensions as possible. How interesting would that person be? I'm not sure. Maybe they'd be fascinating. They'd be the proverbial most interesting man or woman in the world. But they might just be, you know, not that focused and not get so far with it. That's very interesting. What do you think are the trade-offs
1: that people are constantly making in their lives and don't realize they're making?
2: Well, we're so much creatures of habit and inertia and status quo bias is one of the most important biases in behavioral economics. So just keeping in mind how much we're really all ruled by that, it's very hard to do. Because you always want to paint this like very positive picture of yourself as I'm more open and inquiring than the other people in my social media feed whom I don't like anymore. Is the implication of that argument that when you've begun to consider a change that you are probably past the point of where you should have already made it? So often that's true. Yes. If you think as I do, status quo bias is the big bias in uh, the way people act and think then that's probably the case. Did you see the paper? I think it was Stephen Levitt, Dubner paper? Which one is The Economist? Levitt's The Economist. Levitt.
1: And they did a paper, and, and I don't think the methodology on this paper was great, but it was interesting, where they had people sign up on the Freakonomics website and sign up with a decision they needed to make and then flip coins to make the decision. And the lesson of the paper was that, overwhelmingly, people should have made the change that when they did the coin flip and it just had the mid to change, they were just happy with it on the other side. And I didn't think that was a great argument for making big changes in life by coin flip. Yes. But it implied to me that what was often happening was people were afraid to take the final step. And the coin flip structure was giving them this sort of outside license, outside nudge to do something they had already wanted to do. And that what it implied was that by the time you're really obsessing over
2: decision to the degree that you would even consider a coin flip for it, you probably just should have made it already. You know, I agree with their conclusion, but maybe not their method. So on this, we have the same view. I've thought a lot about the internet. What kind of coin flip is that? Is it a coin flip toward the status quo or is it a coin flip toward making changes? And increasingly, I worry it's a coin flip toward the status quo. There's always something to keep you busy, keep you entertained, where you don't have to make a really big change. It matches you to things you you know you like or maybe love. A lot of big positives there but it could be the internet is in some ways slowing down change. Give an example of the kind of change it would slow down. A lot of revolutionary changes occur because of ways in which you interact with your physical world. You go to a place you haven't been before. You meet people through accident. You realize that something in your current setup isn't working for you. And when there's always the internet there, which really is entertaining and stimulating in great ways, Maybe you don't encounter those crises enough. There's always something to do that's pretty good. Big positive there, but maybe you end up making fewer of these significant changes. I'd say we don't know yet, but that's one of my worries about the internet. All right. So you're at George Mason
1: University. What are your rules for a successful college experience? You mean as a student? As a student.
2: I think at any school, the key is to seek out a small number of people that you will learn a lot from. Some of them should be professors. And uh, they will be, in some ways, role models and help you learn how to learn from other people and other things. Do people overrate how much it matters which college you go to? That seems to be the case in the data. So for you know a given quality of student, to use that phrase, it seems there's a lot of agonizing about where to go. And it's hard to see it matters so much. So if you are choosing between five colleges
1: that are you know roughly similar in the rankings— The implication is that between those colleges, there's probably not a, a huge difference. A lot of that is just going to be chance of who you meet and what kind of experience you have and which dorm you're placed into, et cetera.
2: I think there are personality types that should go to particular schools that match to that personality type. So if you're a particular kind of, you know, quantitative nerd, maybe you really should go to Caltech rather than going to Kenyon, even though they're both very good schools. I often give people the advice, go to a school that's somewhere you really want to live Maybe that's too subjective or even too consumption-oriented, but that's often how I look at it. I went to UC Santa Cruz for two years of college in UCLA for one,
1: and it is extraordinary to me, at least in California, how nice the places that (laughs) you get to go to college are. Absolutely. It is like the public university system in California is really something- Santa Barbara also. It's incredible. I I just didn't go to Santa Barbara, but yes, it is insane. San Diego is beautiful- Berkeley is beautiful. So I grew up at UC Irvine. Yes. When were you at UC Irvine?
2: 1987 through 90, give or take. It's not exactly right, but around then. What did you think of Irvine? I found it fascinating as a social science experiment in what was more or less a originally company-owned town with sales of land according to the Coast Durable Goods Monopoly and everything planned and quite sterile. And if you're, you know, 25 years old and single, it's very frustrating. It's not that intellectual. But it was a brilliant social experiment. And if it produced you, you know, that's something in its favor. Well, there's a strange blogging energy in Irvine. Isn't so Kevin Drum?
1: Kevin Drum is there? in Irvine. Yeah. I believe Hugh Hewitt is in Irvine. Okay. He certainly was in Irvine. I didn't know that. Atrios was at UC Irvine. Correct. And w- were you guys there at the same time? No, we never overlapped. Never I've never overlapped. met him. Obviously, you were there, and I think I might even be forgetting some people. But but for the early blogosphere, actually, that is a a lot of the... Doesn't Steve Saller live near there? I don't know.
2: Yeah. But that that's interesting. Maybe it's because it's so boring. Oh, that's interesting. That you're forced into the internet if you're smart. I have often struggled with this because I come from Irvine.
1: And yes. so like a kid who comes from, I think, most places that are not L.A. or Manhattan, I often will say that, you know, where I grew up was boring. And then I wonder, is there anything actually... Particularly boring about my town, or is what's boring being a kid? You have certain boundaries pushed on you. You don't have money to spend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you think Irvine is actually boring, or
2: is it just a, a nice suburb? Well, it's it's both. You know, it's probably good to grow up somewhere boring. At times, I wonder about Matt Iglesias who works for Vox, as you know. And Matt grew up in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, which is not boring, and he somehow survived nonetheless. And he's very curious, but I feel he was crippled in a way by that upbringing. He wasn't bored enough, and what what is the outcome of that crippling? You think the world is coming to you when it's not. It may cement your status quo bias. It may make you more provincial. Now Matt's overcome all these things. That's to his credit. But I would say we should think A Rags more to of Matt's
1: story of of, of <laughs> overcoming an upbringing in Greenwich Village.
2: <laughs> yes, we should think more of Matt because he managed nonetheless. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's very funny. What are the best parts of Irvine?
2: The best parts of Irvine. For ethnic food, it's wonderful, It's especially the far reaches of town, which take a long time to get to. That was one of my big frustrations. You think, oh, this place is in Irvine, but it's still a 25-minute drive. There's always a traffic light. All streets are on its more or less equal par, so there's never a way you can just drive and make all the lights. I like driving to Newport Beach, going for a walk in the ocean, but it's not a walkable town, and I was generally happy to get out of it. I left Costa Mesa and Santa Ana. Orange, Westminster. Orange County is probably still underrated.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's very, I hated Laguna Beach. That's the really? worst part. Oh, it's I So love beautiful
2: Beach. and nice and comfortable.
1: That's also how I would have described why I like Laguna yes. Beach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Westminster is an amazing place just for food now. Correct. Yes. What is the best kind of ethnic food in Irvine?
2: When I was there, the Persian food was amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's the best now. In general, Asian food in Orange County was very, very good. When
1: did you develop your interest in specifically ethnic food?
2: Well, all of food is ethnic food. So I grew up eating hamburgers and fish and chips. Fair That's, enough. But when I moved to Germany at age 23, and I just was taken away from my status quo bias, which had kept me from ethnic food, then I tried everything. That was the be- single best decision I made in my life, was to live for a year in Germany. What, you said when were you in Germany? 1985. That was after college? Correct. I was in grad school and everyone told me this is a crazy thing to do. Don't take time away from Harvard, do your studies, whatever, you know, work with faculty. All of which was good advice and I completely ignored it. I was just curious and had this burning desire to go somewhere, learn German. And I learned more that year than, you know, any other year of my life by far. Tell me what you learned. I went to a large number of the countries in Europe and just had an opening sense of what they were like and the possibility of different ways of lives, different polities. An incredible year for me. I still can't get over it. Why
1: did you come back if it was so great?
2: Well, I came back and kept on going back, but I wanted to go to other places. I couldn't easily get a good job there. German academia then uh, was quite miserable. It's somewhat better now, but still not to be envied. And I wanted an academic career in the U.S. What was Harvard like for you? Um,
1: This is economics program at Harvard, I assume?
2: Yeah, I had mixed feelings about it. I felt the other students were often not always that friendly to me. The faculty were very open. Do you think that was a personality thing or an
1: ideological thing?
2: I think somewhat of an ideological thing. Harvard economics, the years I was there, was in some ways at a low point. It had lost a lot of people. So I'd say I was on my own more than a lot of people are at Harvard. But, you know, maybe that was good for me, too. I learned a lot. And my few best classes, like with Larry Summers, Joseph Calt, those were just amazingly, unbelievably good. What was Larry Summers like as a teacher at that point? I suspect, well, I've heard him speak, you know, very recently. He's the same. You hear him think out loud in a way which is still perfectly composed and quite brilliant. And the way he pulls insights out of nowhere and brings them together in a uniquely Summers-like intellectual picture, that was amazing, still is. You
1: appear to me in the time that I have followed your work yes. uh, to be a little bit unusual as an economist. The kind of work you produce is not, you know, the sort of highly quantitative, long papers kind of thing. Was that a direction you went in right out of school or is that something you were only able to do later after tenure?
2: I've always been weird and I I got tenure that way, but in some ways I don't quite think of myself as an economist. So when I was 13, 14, I thought I either wanted to become an economist or a philosopher And I looked into it, I saw becoming a philosopher was entirely impractical. But I think ultimately I did become a philosopher, but a philosopher who writes about economic topics. So I'd say I'm a philosopher and an information collector and also an economist, but maybe not mainly a research economist in the standard way. So when you went
1: out on the job market, what was your pitch? What was your paper? Did you present as a different kind of economist or were you trying to hide that until you got in somewhere?
2: No, I uh, was completely open about how how weird I was intellectually. I got a very good first job at UC Irvine due to a fellow named Julie Margolis. My job market paper was on how to value human lives. It had a big philosophical element influenced by my mentor, Thomas Schelling. And uh, I did fine. I had tenure at Irvine within two years and had a great setup and later was back at George Mason. I've always had a, a wonderful professional setup. And by always staying weird... That's been good for me because to try to fake being the other way, life is short. Why do that? Tell me about Thomas Schelling. He passed away not too long ago. That was very sad. He was uh, one of the most curious searching minds I've ever met. He had the ability to see the counterintuitive and to tie the anecdotal and the real world example into more generalizable principles in a way where he sounds like he's just talking like a man on the street would do. He's probably the single best mind I've ever encountered, either personally or in print. That was his genius.
1: His body of work is incredible. What do you think is the single most important idea that people should know from Thomas Schelling?
2: Well, he's the father of all of applied game theory. So anything in applied game theory is a very good chance it comes from him. The value of pre-commitment, just basic ways of thinking about nuclear strategy, ways in which people coordinate by having common expectations. Those are some of his main ideas. We now so take them for granted. But before Schelling, they weren't there. What was the um, context in which you went from Irvine to George Mason? I had an offer with a 50% raise and I was in love with the woman who lived in Northern Virginia. Is and, that your wife? No, no, no. It's okay. a totally different story. And uh, that together, and plus I preferred the Northeast, seemed to me hard to refute. How at that point did you have a relationship with a
1: woman in Northern Virginia? Where had you met?
2: Uh, where had we met... I think we first started talking, I was visiting George Mason, Hayek was talking there, I think I was visiting from Harvard, and I met her there, started talking with her there, but I didn't really know her much then. Got it. That wasn't the main reason, it was the whole package, right? Sure. But, you know, at the margin, things like that matter.
1: Absolutely. So you went to George Mason, was your job there, you were just there in the economics department, or did you intend to change course in any way once
2: you got there? I didn't go intending to leave, I didn't have a particular plan. But I wanted to dig in and be happy there. So now I've been there over 25 years. So obviously that's been the outcome.
1: So the fact that you went there in part for a woman is actually a good, a good segue. What are your rules for finding a partner? And I'll say I, I know you and your wife quite well. And I, and from, from where I sit, you guys have a, a wonderful marriage that my wife and I really admire. You guys really seem to enjoy each other. So what are, what are your rules for finding somebody that, that you will enjoy being with?
2: Well, rules for keeping and rules for finding may be quite different. I have both of those questions on my list. Uh, Natasha and I met using Match.com. I think when we did it, we were early adopters. It was probably more effective than now because you had this whole stock of marriageable people who had never used internet dating and they could be matched with each other fairly quickly. And now that stock is somewhat dried up and you're looking for new flow. But there's also a huge accumulated stock of people who use it as an excuse for not marrying or to manipulate others or just because they're lazy or not Uh really for a productive purpose. So partly uh, we got lucky. Look for someone who's kind and really smart and uh, have a good attitude going into the marriage or relationship. I don't know if you'd call those rules. Maybe in a way they're more uh, rules you hope you abide by, but don't always. That's very interesting though, because here is maybe the most important decision
1: and is your least rules-based. You just got more vague there than you have at any other point in our conversation.
2: Well, it's a very Humean decision to marry, and uh, it's hardly based in reason at all. So you just hope there's something about your inbuilt temperament and that of the other person where the match ends up working. You married very quickly, right? We knew each other for about three weeks when I proposed. And why did you make the decision to propose so quickly? It just seemed obvious. And I knew, you know, other men had proposed to Natasha earlier and she hadn't told them yes and she can take a while making decisions and I understood that and I thought well here's my chance just to so shock her to shift the default so the status quo bias is on my side and she will think of it as not really a final yes thinking she can always back out but if I get an initial yes and just hold on that this is the way to actually get her to marry me. And that turned out to be very wise. So this is a Thomas Schelling-esque pre-commitment strategy. Absolutely. And it worked. And I discussed this with her later. And she said, yes, that's exactly how it was. I didn't really tell you yes, but you kind of got me trapped on the yes side of the (laughs) equation. And I never was able to pull the plug on it. And we ended up married. What are your rules for keeping a partner? Just attitude. I mean, some people are incompatible and should split up. So Mm -hmm. it's not that everyone should do everything to stay married. But realize how often you can be wrong. Realize marriage is not just about you being happy. In this sense, American culture is poorly suited toward happy marriages. And a lot of other cultures are better suited because they don't emphasize individual fulfillment so much. What do they emphasize? Duty, social obligations, broader family. And those are problematic in their own ways. They can lead to too much intellectual conformity. But they're probably better... For stability of marriage than individual fulfillment, which no one always gets from anything.
1: And so this is a way in which I think what people would say about the American model of love, of romance, of marriage, is that it is based around allowing people to find happiness. And you're saying that paradoxically, that makes happiness perhaps harder to sustain.
2: Correct. And even in non-marital contexts, if you set out, today, I'm going to try to be happy, you'll probably end up miserable. If it's today, I'm going to try to solve some problem, you might end up happy. Well, that's interesting.
1: If you can make a couple alterations to American marriage, right, putting aside just the international comparison, what are the values you think people should weight more heavily?
2: Well, as a social matter, I think there's too much single-parent marriage. I don't know how to fix that because the marriages that that break up or never come to pass, they're often quite bad or the man has hit the woman or there's a drug abuse problem. But I think that's a, a huge social issue and there's an accumulating body of evidence that's bad for the children. Uh, But no easy, quick fix. Uh, I don't think we could move toward arranged marriages, given where we're at. But when people say, well, arranged marriages are not such a terrible idea, matchmakers are not such a terrible idea, if we could make a marginal nudge in that direction without taking on the whole baggage, that would probably be a good thing. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning.
4: As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— V-A-N-29.com.
1: One of the themes in, in your new book is that perhaps we're getting too good at matching for marriage. Perhaps we're getting too good at finding mates who are just like us, have the same education, have the same social context, the same political opinions. Explain a little bit why you think it might be better to have more, as I think you did 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, more variety between in, within
2: couples. In earlier decades, it was easier for people to experience positive mobility by making a good match. Today, you're more likely to have a well-off man or to be well-off man marry a well-off woman. That's great for them. I'm not saying they're making mistakes, but the social consequences of that are more stratification, and we see that in real estate prices, differences between really good and not-so-good schools. So you'd like more randomization there. One advantage of having a lot of immigration in a country is you marry foreigners more often, and they are different, and they may be very smart, but not come into the country having everything prearranged for them. Natasha's a Soviet Jew, as you know, and I'm not that, and uh, that's healthy. It's one underappreciated value of having immigration. It's cross-cultural marriages. Explain that a little bit more. Why is that valuable? People from different countries have different ways of viewing the world. You learn more from them. They help bring other ethoses to marriage other than just individual fulfillment, mm. because that was not the prevailing ethos in Soviet communist times. And uh, in terms of mobility, it's not mobility of American citizens, but in a global sense, there's a tremendous amount of undermeasured income mobility in this country through the fact that immigrants marry either each other or non-immigrants, and do much better than they would if they'd stayed at home.
1: And I think somebody listening to this might wonder why that isn't a zero-sum thing, right? Why, assuming that you have a, a stock of people and you can have, you know, two people the same group marry, or you can have people of different groups, but wouldn't it all just converge into the same point on average? You're saying that overall it's positive sum, this kind of matching.
2: Sure. Matching has both positive sum and zero sum elements. But if people have different preferences, there are huge gains from matching them to the right partners or the right hobbies or the right clubs, whatever. And I think that's most of what marriage is about. So there's some people who want to marry like the most beautiful woman, as would be defined by a model who'd be on the cover of Vogue. And that's much closer to zero sum. I don't think it's what most people want.
1: When you say that, are you saying that it's not what they actually want or it's Not even what they think they
2: want. Neither. Some people will claim they want it and maybe some do. Interestingly, those are exactly the people who are taxed by the world of the internet because marrying like the most beautiful woman is harder than ever before because the whole world knows who she is and chases that. It's
1: not just the most beautiful woman in your town.
2: That's right. The bar is really high. Whereas if you're somewhat strange or different and looking for something heterogeneous, unusual... You can match to that much better. You're a big gainer from the internet. What are the qualities in partners
1: that you think people underrate? Because you talked about things I think people do think about, kind, decent, you know, wants to commit in a real way. What do you think are the things that people should think about more but don't?
2: If you take the marriage decision as ruled by Humean passion, I'm not sure there's a meaningful way to answer that question. But education is valued highly in marriage choice, but it ought to be valued highly, maybe even a bit more.
1: So, one thing that you do very well and, and you as a couple do incredibly well is travel. And I'm curious how you think about in the Broadway travel fitting into
2: your life. Travel for me is the best way of learning. It's far more potent than books. A lot of books I read, I'm a little disillusioned. You know, you learn by reading books in clusters. Read about, say, Andrew Jackson for a month. You'll learn a lot. Just read a random book. It may or may not stick with you. Who mm-hmm. knows? Travel to a new place or revisiting an old place, it's just a sensory assault. Everything you see is new. You see new cultures, new ways of life. You realize what you thought, you know, had to be the case now is contingent. You talk to different people. It's a wonderful randomization combating of status quo bias. And when you travel, how do you decide where to go next? Well, increasingly, it's where am I invited, conditional on, I haven't been there too many times before, but my latest trip was to Lagos, Nigeria, and I wasn't invited. I arranged to go. And I'd never been to Nigeria. I absolutely loved the trip, loved the city, and learned so much more than I ever could have by reading books about Nigeria, say. So I get extremely
1: exhausted by travel. How do you travel so that you're able to do it as much as you do? Because it's certainly the way I do it. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong, but certainly I do it, I would not be able to take as many trips as you do. I do this and it drains me completely. So what are you doing that is making it less taxing on you.
2: Well, maybe I have a a better work ethic than you do, believe it or not. I I would totally believe that. I think of work as leisure, as regenerating me, and travel as work and draining me. Oh, interesting. But I, I wouldn't say force myself to do it. It's great fun, just as work can be great fun. But it's the thing that's hard to do where you have to keep on pushing yourself, just as Bill Gates really pushed himself in the early days of Microsoft. And you just need this kind of ethic of travel. But you're not happier when you travel. Let's make that clear. You're you're happier when you're at home working, I think. And it's uh, relaxing and regenerative.
1: All right. That's actually, that at the very least is comforting to hear. You just mentioned Bill Gates and remind me of something I wanted to ask you. I don't remember where it was, but I heard you on a podcast a long time ago. And you were asked for your definition of successful. Yes. And you were basically not able to come up with a human being you thought had been successful. And you said, Bill Gates might prove to have been successful, but it's really too early to know. Right. One thing,
2: what is your definition of successful? What would it take to meet your definition? I'm not sure I have a single definition. I think very few people are influential. Most of what happens would have happened anyway. And the the people who make a big difference tend to be destructive. So Hitler made a big difference. Without Hitler, I don't think there would have been another Hitler. It's easier to destroy than create. Without Bill Gates, would we still have you know, software of a broadly similar kind, I think so. There's a reasonable chance his foundation will have made a major impact. He's one of the most successful people I can think of. And the final legacy is still, I would say, unclear, you know, fully positive. I'm a big admirer of Bill Gates. It's a claim about the world rather than any criticism of Bill Gates. But just how hard it is to matter, how many intellectuals really improve the world, I once wrote a piece for you saying Andrew Sullivan was the most influential intellectual of, I think, the last 20 years because of gay marriage and gay rights. He's made a difference. I think Peter Singer has made somewhat of a difference. Very few others have.
1: Do you think if not for Andrew, we would have gay marriage today?
2: I think there's a good chance we still would have, but by no means a certain chance. He really pushed it, pushed it, pushed it at a time when everyone said, back off this, it's too controversial, it won't ever happen. And he was a complete bulldog and just saw it through over decades and was articulate and persuasive. And ultimately, he won for the better. And so
1: when you think of successful, it seems to me then you have you have a couple pieces in there. You have one is improving the world is something you said, but the other is having put the world maybe on a path that it would not have been absent you. So so there's a a deep quality of originality in your definition of successful. Right. Right. So in this, and and I'll forget the other person's name, but Alexander Graham Bell would not really be successful because there's that other person also inventing the telephone at the same
2: time. Well, I don't want to insist on a definition of the word successful. That seems to me a little squirrely. But the general point that production occurs in teams and what's important is the ethos more than the individual But oddly, the ethos you need is one that has to glorify the individual. And that's the Straussian side of this. You need a somewhat false ethos. And the people who are really influential, as I said, tend to be destructive. And that's also the danger in excess individualism, that what you actually can end up with is too much destructiveness. All right. To go back to travel, what are your three favorite places to go? Not the places you go to learn the most at this point, but the
1: ones that you just love being in.
2: But that's the same thing. So I've been to Singapore now six times. I don't know if at the margin it's my favorite anymore, but it's been a big favorite. Here's a country more or less run by technocrats and economists. Whatever you might think of that, it's fascinating to see. It's a way underrated tourist destination. To see how Japan has changed over time I find very interesting. It went from the coolest place in the world to, in part, a very large retirement community, but it's managed its decline with such grace, and the quality of life there is still high. That, to me, is one of the most interesting And then I'm always going to pick the last place I went because it's what I'm thinking about, and that's Lagos, Nigeria. I heard fantastic music every night, completely new and different set of foods. Who knew that powdered steamed yam could be so delicious? It's much safer than people think. You can visit it. And just to see the the human capital there really impressed me. So when you decided
1: to go to Lagos, Nigeria, how did you make that decision?
2: I thought, here's a country of 180 million people, a city of 20 million people, the largest GDP in Africa, growing dynamic, and I've never been. I felt shame, embarrassment. And now at least I've been once. I want to go back. I want to go to the north. I want to see different areas. We'll see how that goes. When you go to a place like Lagos, how do you plan the trip? I don't do much planning, and I actually do less planning the more trips I take. So I try to avoid the internet, actually, and do the trip as if it were 1985 and go around quite a bit and talk to people more. And I don't, usually have that much of an itinerary and just physically get my body around to different parts of the city.
1: Do you try to connect with people before you go, or do you just let yourself be there? Do you prefer to be there on your own, simply experiencing it, however your whims take you?
2: Usually I connect with a few people in advance, but not too many, and I meet up with them and I let that evolve. I don't want to have a whole pre-planned set of connections. This way you discover, like, what's the fruitful connection, what isn't. So when you got to
1: Lagos, I assume you go to the hotel, maybe put your stuff down. But but once you've done that, what is your
2: first move? To walk around two or three different neighborhoods, which are not the most important neighborhoods, but where you will learn something. You want to save the most integrative experiences for maybe your third or fourth day, where they will mean more to you. But you're dipping your toe in, do some walking around, and then think about the all-important food— where can you start understanding how their food markets work, what they eat, what tastes good? That's going to come at noon, most likely, or 11.45. And I just get a sense of things. And where I did hired you... a driver my first day. Mm-hmm. I got in somewhat late at night and went to sleep. But the next day, I was up with the driver and then walking, too, with him.
1: And did you ask him to make some of those decisions? Did you rely on his knowledge or did you rely on your own research?
2: On my blog, I had put up a blag, and I said, where should I go in Lagos? I spat out a few names of places to him, and I said, bring me to places these or like these and add in your own judgment, and I randomized somewhat. I'm a big believer in randomization when you travel. Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? You don't want to plan everything. You want to rely on unreliable sources. You'll see new and different things. Now, your first trip is different. If you've never been anywhere, it's like, my goodness, I'm going to Paris. I have to see the Eiffel Tower. It's perfectly understandable. But the more trips you take, you just don't want to march through what the guidebook says. You want to randomize.
1: If you went to Paris now, what would you do
2: there? I go to Paris all the time, almost once a year. I frequent cheese shops more and more and restaurants less. And I try to see new and unusual exhibits and walk in parts of town that are weird or tourists don't usually go to. I've only been to Paris once.
1: I missed a plane coming back from it due to a mixture of getting obsessed by a cheese shop and also there being a labor transit strike, which I thought was the most Parisian way I could have possibly missed a plane. Yes.
2: <laughs> the good and the bad of pushing you in the same direction. Right. Plane yes. Missing.
1: Along your travels, you're a very intense collector. You have incredible art from Mexico. You have- uh, Haiti, yes. From Haiti. How do you think about collection?
2: You understand art much better when you view it as a buyer and it's your actual money on the line. It's one of the best ways to learn. It helps structure your trips. You know, it so increases your visual intelligence, which I feel today is such an underrated part of intelligence. So reading is quite robust. Museum going, if you measure visits, is growing and robust, but I think visual intelligence actually has been declining. And people who can look at paintings, sculpture, understand them, analyze them, So figure out what they're worth or what's interesting in them. I worry about that skill, and it's one of the best skills to cultivate if you want to learn how to look at non-visual arts issues and new, different, and interesting ways. But How did you decide on the kinds of art that you collect? Well, it's what uh, can be afforded. So uh, the largest part of the collection is art from rural Mexico. It's a kind of outsider art. The prices are fairly low, and it's also a way of performing charity is to support some families who produce it art from Haiti. You can get, you know, masterpieces of Haitian art for well under $10,000. And you can't really do that with Western art. So uh, I would rather have very high quality works in a kind of minor tradition. And I think I enjoy those as much as if the, the house were full of Rembrandts.
1: And when
2: you say enjoy those,
1: I know this is a strange question, but what
2: do you find enjoyable about art? Every day, if I'm at home, not traveling, I walk around and look at them And I smile and get a warm glow and I see new things in them and uh, they make me rethink everything. It's like keeping a gratitude journal also because good art often has problematic themes and content, you know, death, agriculture, the human life cycle, war, politics. And you see that portrayed in some compelling way on your wall and it's things you've seen before but you always have to think about it more.
1: If you are at home and you find yourself unexpected with 20, 25 minutes to kill, what do you do?
2: Look at my Twitter feed. I don't know. I'm embarrassed to admit that. It depends really what time of day it is. I might walk around and look at the art a bit. There's always a pile of books. I might read those, look at something on the internet, start writing a blog post, do some work on a Bloomberg column. There's plenty.
1: What are your rules for
2: remaining calm and measured in an uncalm time? I don't think I have rules. I think it's my natural temperament. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me not to be calm. I just don't get upset over things. Even if there's something terrible on the front page of the newspaper, I don't throw a rage about it. I just feel very bad, but I'm pretty calm. What are your rules for spending money? I think a lot of people don't spend enough money. You look at the size bequests people die with. Sometimes their heirs need it. That's great. It's fine. But that seems to me a mistake. It's wrong. Either give it away when you're alive or spend more of it or both. And uh, I don't think my rate of savings, you know, is so high actually. And I feel good about this. Because you think that most people have, to the extent they can, I
1: want to bracket that, but people who do have enough money to have high rates of savings, you think in in general they oversave.
2: Probably. Again, I'm not saying everyone should copy me. Mm -hmm. I have a tenured university job. And I even bought an insurance policy that I have disability. I get half my salary. It's an expensive policy. But I feel that's a cushion. Got it. And my worst case scenario is way above a lot of people's worst case scenarios. A lot of people should save more. But if you have some degree of comfort, at least consider spending more.
1: So I'm going to move now from asking about rules to just asking about a couple of ideas. Not doing sure. overrated, underrated, okay. but just different ideas that but, I think are out there right now that I would like your, your views but on. But if
2: they're underrated, can I say? You can say. Okay. You can definitely say they're underrated.
1: I feel like it has become a thing to ask you overrated, <laughs> underrated, which we have done at Vox to great yes. success, and I, and I want to not do it to you this time. The idea
2: that we live in a computer simulation. I understand the Bayesian logic that it ought to be true, but I don't think it is. Here's the way I would put it. Most plausible theories of the universe, the universe is a kind of computation as it is. So we do live in a computer simulation, but that's not actually any different than Ayn Rand's insistence that existence exists. So to the extent it's true, it's probably trivial. Everything's computation.
1: So I have a view on this I'd be curious for your thoughts on. It seems to me that what human beings do is they imagine the world created by bigger versions of their own creation process. So it used to be that it was like there's a guy like you, but he right. had a big beard and he was God and he had just created the universe sort of as you would manufacture something. Now you have a vogue of computer engineers and what they've imagined are computer engineers creating the universe the way they create computer programs. And it just it makes me wonder if we don't have a very narrow imagination about what the possibilities for existence and the precursors to it could be.
2: You know, David Hume makes a comparable point in his still I'm underrated- I've already thought of
1: myself as much like David
2: yeah, Hume. Dialogues on natural <laughs> religion, that if you come across a watch in the desert, you have context for understanding what a watch is. But when you quote unquote come across the universe, you have no context or comparator. So all of your intuitions about the universe are in a way nonsensical, including the secular ones. Yeah, I buy that completely. Universal basic income. I used to favor it. Now I'm pretty skeptical. The more you think about politics as about symbolic values, the more I feel we need to put up a big sign on this country saying we're for immigrants who really want to work and create. And the notion that you should do a lot of your welfare through jobs, I get that it's economically inefficient and I get that it doesn't cover everyone, but I feel the ultimate long run returns to that are pretty high and I've become a fan of it. And just to draw out what you mean there, are you saying you've become a fan of something more like a basic jobs guarantee or giant public works programs or something like that? Well, those would depend on the cyclical state of the economy, but earned income tax credit where you pay people extra for working, which we do now and may expand in the future, many people favor it, but people tend to favor it and then want a lot more. I've moved closer to the position of wanting coverage to not be so universal And to attract the better mix of immigrants and have a really strong pro-work ethic in society, understanding people will go uncovered and not wanting the same for New Zealand. But if your country is the global generator of innovation and public goods, I think you should take that very seriously. I think then
1: related to that, the idea that artificial intelligence and automation will lead to, let's just say as a baseline, a doubling of the unemployment rate in 15 years.
2: That's extremely unlikely. I do think it will lower labor force participation for working age males, as it has already, and that's a big problem. But the extreme scenarios are are far overblown, and it's just hyperbole. But if you believe that's a trend we're on, then doesn't
1: that cut against having a social support system even more tied to work?
2: My fear is that if you take those working age males and allow them to continue not to work, you'll ultimately make the problem worse. And there's some shift in norms needed, some mix of some of those males learning to do subservient service sector jobs, some shift of those males learning to migrate more, sometimes even to other countries, and some shift of people becoming more stoic and sort of more content with what they are and not so restless. And the idea that you just feed people living not so healthy lifestyles and let them do it, I think we're seeing, and you know, apart from the Trump campaign, people want jobs. Yes, they want support, but what makes them happy is jobs. Are there ways a government could
1: provide jobs? And I mean jobs. I don't mean the way they can help boost the economy. I think everybody agrees they should do that. But to the extent that policymakers believe they have maxed out on what they could do to help the economy, to what degree should the government just be providing make work?
2: I consider that option more seriously. I don't know the answer. I do of course think we should build more infrastructure. Say you build the smart grid, how many of the problem people will that put to work? I don't know, but I seriously worry the answer is not enough. If there were a Straussian way to have make work jobs, but cloaked as something else and if that were sustainable, I would consider it. I'm not sure that's possible, but I think we need to experiment in that space more. We have a federalistic society, I'd gladly see more experiments. Trump's vision of sort of coercive capitalism, where he goes and says, you, you're
1: a good company, you kept jobs here, you, you're a bad company, you sent jobs away.
2: Well, it's terrible, but if that's the worst thing we get from him, I'll be extremely relieved. So why is it like, terrible? It politicizes all decisions. It means business leaders have an incentive to support him and not oppose him, which might allow him to do other terrible things. In effect, it takes away free speech within the business community. And it's arbitrary and unfair. The war on drugs. The war on drugs is a terrible thing. I do, other than selling drugs to children, but I don't think people should ever go to jail for things they do to their own bodies. I would decriminalize all the drugs I know about. I'm not sure you can completely legalize everything, but it should never be a reason to send people to jail. Again, children excluded. That's a somewhat separate issue. A uh, NATO. I love NATO. I hope we can keep it. Here's the positive scenario. Trump has said NATO is dead, and now the whole world is scurrying to defend and strengthen NATO. And if Trump does a flip on NATO, which I don't by any means rule out, this could actually be the thing that strengthens NATO. That's my hope. It's not my prediction. More likely than not, Trump is just increasing noise and uncertainty And a lot of different alliances will fall away just because the U.S. has become so unpredictable. What do you think the role, if you say you love NATO, what do you think the role of NATO is in this era? Well, it's very simple, to stop Russian expansion in the East. Russia is in some regards a country with evil leadership. I think the standard Mitt Romney line that, you know, there are evil leaders and cultures and you need to watch out for them and take vigorous action is correct. Russia qualifies there, but you need cooperation. We don't have that right now. Do you think that we have culturally
1: begun to underweight the dangers
2: posed by other states? Oh, absolutely. Again, if you were looking for a positive scenario from the Trump presidency, it may be a big wake-up call where we cease being so complacent. But the notion that China is a major expansionist power, though not aggressive toward America at all, that Russia is potentially a major expansionist power in Eurasia, Those are the two most important facts about the world right now, and they're not really on the minds of most of the American people. Fake news. We've had fake news for a long time, the satanic kidnappings or, oh, we're not really bombing Laos and Cambodia. Fake news is terrible, but I think recently it's gotten too much play. The problem is relative frequencies of real news much more than fake news.
1: Is social media good for people?
2: We don't know yet. As I said before, it's this huge experiment being done without controls. I suspect it's good for weirdos, but maybe not that great for society as a whole. It's funny. A lot of us are weirdos, so it may be a net positive.
1: It's interesting, though. I wonder if it is good for weirdos. I think when you say weirdos, you mean infobores. You mean this this concept of people who are extremely good at absorbing tons of information. And I wonder a bit if social media and some of these similar technologies, they give you too good of a hookup. They're too addictive. And so if you have that quality where you really enjoy that, it actually makes it too hard to pull back. I certainly feel that sometimes.
2: But take non-mainstream sexual preferences, people who are something other than what you would call mainstream heterosexual. It's really quite a few people. And they are much, much better off. That to me seems hard to contest. But from social media? Yes, the, say the percentage of gay individuals who met their partners using online data, it's very high. I agree with online dating. I, I'm thinking of more Twitter, Facebook
1: worlds, but that might be But right. it's a And it may be for
2: them too. Yeah, so... American exceptionalism. I do believe America is an exceptional nation and should think of itself as such. And this norm weakening is one of my great worries about our current time. And if you ask what makes America exceptional... It's the embedded mix of religiosity and the high status we're willing to give to businessmen, our belief that our way of life is best, which of course it isn't, but we believe it, and that's overall a good thing, and this notion, this kind of Puritan notion that there are individual life projects and it's your highest calling to pursue them. And we both live by this, even though neither of us is Protestant. And I think that combination is just fantastic. So dangerous, too. Making society cashless. You know, one of my... Well, my first book was about cashless society, and I predicted this will happen, and I think it will happen, but I worry more on the normative side about privacy issues than I did in the past. The book came out in the early 90s. I didn't see surveillance would be such a big deal. You know, it could be we're going to lose our privacy anyway, with or without cash. So I think it will make macro policy in some ways better. But I worry about the bigger trend it's embedded in, and that's loss of privacy and way too much surveillance.
1: Transhumanism, biohacking stuff.
2: I'm more skeptical about CRISPR and genetic engineering than almost all the other smart people I know. I feel we'll mess it up. I feel tyrants may pursue it more vigorously than free societies. I feel even if it works, it may make the human race too conformist. Parents want a certain amount of conformity in their children, and they want all of their children to do well enough and we may end up with too few weirdos. So I'm mostly skeptical. I do hope it works out. There's a good chance it will. But I'd rather be a voice of caution at current margins. Climate change. If by climate change you mean global warming caused by CO2 emissions, Mm -hmm. there's a growing chance it's a huge problem. I'm not sure numerically how large that is, but we ought to do what we can against it. I favor a carbon tax, but I suspect that's not enough. And what to do beyond that, I'm not sure I have the expertise to judge, but I'd say it's the extra stuff we do that probably will make the difference, and it may just all boil down to luck. Geoengineering. Well, we're geoengineering right now, right? That's, that's climate change. Yep. So I don't reject the notion the way some people do. Some people say, oh, you talk about geoengineering, people will get complacent about climate change. We're doing geoengineering. My great fear is the you know, evil or semi-evil nations in the world will do it without cooperating, And it's a great danger. I don't know how to stop that. The
1: idea that Trump poses a fundamental threat to democratic institutions, if he could build some kind of autocracy, some kind of crony capitalist (laughs) Putin-esque-like system, the idea that there is something here that's not just a presidency you disagree with, but could in some fundamental way alter the workings of our political system going forward.
2: I do see the Trump administration as a fundamental threat, but I think the main threat is foreign policy, a mix of unpredictability of temperament, an uncertainty of policy leading alliances to crumble and also a higher chance of a war with another major power. That, to me, is all terrible. At least so far, I'm a bit more in the Ross Duthett camp that what he's doing are signs of weakness and the system will beat him than I am in thinking he will end up as a modal prediction being a fundamental threat. But look, certainly he's more of a fundamental threat to democracy than any of the other candidates who all were at zero on that margin. But still, I'm mostly at this point agreeing with Ross that he doesn't know what he's doing. The actual fascists were in fact quite politically skilled and odds are the system will beat him.
1: Making human beings a multi-planet species.
2: I would be very surprised if that ever happened. Planets are far, they're harsh, they're hostile. Why don't we you know, make Nevada a place to settle or ocean platforms? There's plenty of space in the world. Seems a lot easier than other planets. I don't see what they have to offer in economic terms.
1: But isn't the idea that if Earth got hit by a giant asteroid, it got ripped through by a terrible pandemic, or had a nuclear war, or global warming becomes much, much worse than we think, that you need, you want to have some diversification of your
2: risk? I don't think, say, a Mars colony could ever be very large. I suppose they have cheap solar power. But if we destroy ourselves, they're going to as well. They're more likely to destroy themselves than we are. They don't have much in the way of resources. You know, if people want to try, I'm not opposed, but I'm very skeptical. Effective altruism. Well, it's underrated by almost everyone, who, people who just give money away indiscriminately. But I think people within the effective altruism movement way overrate it. They think they can rationally figure out where's the best place to give money. And they're very convinced a lot of establishment donations are not so worthwhile. I'm not sure that's true. The idea of giving a million dollars to Harvard if you're an alum, I'm not sure that's the wrong thing to do. Harvard's this amazing, self-sustaining, self-generating cluster. They earn a high rate of return. Even if Harvard's just a hedge fund, if they can earn 8% a year, which by the way, they haven't been doing lately, that's highly productive. So I think it's very hard to know. And the notion that if you make giving too rational, a lot of people will just do less of it, I don't think they take seriously enough. Superhero movies. Most of them I don't like. Spider-Man 2 I loved. A few of the Supermans I thought were very good. The comic book-based ones tend to be too tentpole for my tastes, and the powers people have are too arbitrary. I like superheroes like Flash or Superman, where the powers are sort of well-defined and generalizable. But when there's sort of three weird things you can do and 11 you can't, and you have to keep track of it all, and there's eight superhero mutants walking around the movie, I don't get it. There should be some kind of economy of means.
1: (laughs) The idea that this is the golden age of television.
2: I actually think television right now is not as good as movies, and it's a cool thing to have all your great favorite TV shows. But the best movies are, for some reason, deeper and more moving, and they're very often from foreign countries, not from Hollywood, which is at a weak point in its trajectory. But I would rather put my time into movies than television. I do have some shows I watch, but... uh, I think we should speak out against TV just a wee bit. Burning Man. I've never been, so I don't know. That's, I guess, a way in which I'm not curious enough and I have too much status quo bias. I don't like the notion that you show up and you're cut off from your email. Is that how it is, right? Oh, yeah. So that to me is trouble. California seceding from the union. I don't think it will ever happen. I don't think the United States in any feasible time scenario will ever split up. There's no clear line of demarcation. So Scotland leaving the United Kingdom, Catalonia leaving Spain, I wouldn't predict either, but it's clear like what the line is inside, outside. California doesn't quite have that. It is itself fairly divided. And once it becomes complicated how you split up the groups, as it is, say, in Iraq, that tends to weaken secessionist movements.
1: Brexit at this point.
2: I think Brexit will go down as a terrible event, but, you know, ultimately it probably was necessary and the EU always was built on overreach. And I'm not sure it will be seen as a big deal. It will be seen maybe as a symptom. Why is that? If you think the European Union will get weaker anyway, and some other countries will leave anyway, no one's going to point their finger and say, oh, those people behind Brexit, what, what wrong they did. Nationalist intuitions don't go away. We're in an era where they're becoming stronger. And if you try to make everything multinational, and it, that doesn't work. I think it's one thing we're learning. It's a shame. I would love to see free migration of, you know, Poles and Romanians into the United Kingdom. I don't think it's sustainable, though.
1: Life hacking, productivity hacking, the sort of Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek stuff.
2: Well, the four-hour workweek is also known as unemployment. Those are mostly placebos, but placebos are beneficial. So you talk about them as an excuse or substitute for doing something, but at the same time, that's good for you because if you're too anxious about not doing anything, you'll get more anxious yet and won't do anything at all.
1: I like that idea. The rationality community.
2: Well, tell me a little more what you mean. You mean Eliezer Yudkowski? Yeah, I mean Less Wrong.
1: I mean Slate Star Codex, Julia Galef, sort of the, there's an emergent group, I think, around all this. Sometimes Brian Kaplan and Robin Hanson, of right. course, who, who are obviously at George Mason University with you. The community of people who are front-loading ideas like signaling, different cognitive biases, etc.
2: Well, I enjoy all those sources and I read them. It's obviously a kind of endorsement. But I would approve of them much more if they called themselves the irrationality community because it is just another kind of religion, a different set of ethoses. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the notion that this is like the true objective vantage point I find highly objectionable. And that pops up in some of those people more than others. But I think it needs to be realized it's an extremely culturally specific way of viewing the world and that's one of the main things travel can teach you.
1: Who do you always make a point to read?
2: You, oh, uh, as you. a start. Uh, but I think overall, I rely more on what is recommended to me a few times rather than the name of the person. So some of the people I would always read, no matter what, like Derek Parfit or Fisher Black, they've passed away. And we're moving to a world where the amount of good or great content is higher than ever before, but it's less person-tagged. Than ever before as well. Where are you getting those recommendations? Some of it is verbal. Some of it's my Twitter feed. Most of all, people email me things. I sometimes say my business model is reading my email. So that's interesting. I don't get that as much. I worry on my Twitter feed that what I get recommended are things that are controversial. Twitter is getting much worse.
1: Like I use nuzzle, which I actually like a lot. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a difference between a piece that people want to talk about and a piece that is maybe the most helpful in informing me about something. And it isn't to say they can't sometimes be the same, but a really excellent look at some theories that would help me think about infrastructure in the future is probably not going to get a very high level of rise in my Twitter feed. Of course. Whereas, you know, Donald Trump told off the prime minister of Australia. But we need to know that too. Yeah, no,
2: no, I'm not arguing that point. But my philosophy is to answer every serious email I get. And if you do that, and get a lot of emails, over time, people will email you wonderful things. How do you manage your email? I don't manage it. People send me things and I write them back. How do you manage the amount of time it would take you to answer every serious email? I spend that time. That's how I manage it. It's a priority. I think it's one of the most important things to do. And I sometimes ask myself a question, like if I were a kid, and I was a kid, and I wrote people letters, not what I did, by the way, like if they wrote me back, could that have had a really big influence on me, and the answer is yes, and other people have testified to this, so writing back an email is like answering a letter from that kid, and I actually feel I have a moral duty to do that
1: That's interesting.
2: Society has given you just made me, me feel you know, like a pay very bad person and tenure well you your job is different than mine, right? My job is an educator, that's part of your job, but it's not your job in capital letters. And I've been given, you know, tenure, some control over my own time. And I have some moral obligations in return other than just showing up for class. And something like that is one of them.
1: So obviously the first book from you they should read, everybody should read is A Complacent Class, which Absolutely. is your new book. What is the second book of yours people should pick up? If they've heard this discussion and they've, they're fascinated by who you are and the way you think, what are the next things to read to understand or that they might enjoy?
2: I would say The Age of the Infavore is a book that is different from Complacent Class, but mostly just work backwards in chronological order.
1: And finally, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend everyone read?
2: Well, there's no book that everyone should read, but John Stuart Mill's Autobiography, Derek Parfit's Reasons and Persons, Fisher Black on Business Cycles, Adam Smith, Plato. And just, you know, thinking philosophically, treat that as a a lifelong task, something you're always trying to learn, and you're your own worst enemy. How do you learn to think philosophically? By overcoming status quo bias, hitting yourself on the head all the time, that you're an idiot, and trying to create things embedded in your routines to remind yourself how stupid you are. It's hard to do. Thank you very much. Ezra, thank you.
1: That was Tyler. Thank you to him for the time he spent. You should check out his book, The Complacent Class. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply Production. And we'll be back next week. Perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.
0: First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts.